You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. The leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest this week is Paul Comfort. Paul is the Senior Vice President and Chief Customer Officer for the world's leading transit technology company, Modexo. He's the host of his industry's top podcast, Transit Unplugged, and this TV show, Transit Unplugged TV, on YouTube. Paul's also an attorney and a number one best-selling author with five books to his name and a sixth coming out next year, The New Future of Public Transportation, being published by the Society of Automotive Engineers. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks, Laura. Great to be here. What is your fun fact? Fun fact about me is I learned to play piano when I was a kid. You know, the, the mm-hmm. classic mom makes you practice when yes. everybody else is out having fun. So anyway, I, I ended up being all right at it. Uh, started a band. We made a record. We toured when I was in college. And I've played ever since. And now I try to integrate my passions and loves into my work. So when I go around the world, whether, you know, it's Scotland or the Middle East, I try to find a piano in a subway station or a public transit station. I play it and do a little mini concert for the people in there. And it's fun. What fun. I'm trying to think of the number of, I mean, I lived for 20 something years in the city, whether it was in Japan, in the US and wherever without a car. So mass transit was definitely something that I relied on on a regular basis. And I'm pretty familiar with mass transit stations, subway stations, bus stops. I cannot say I've ever seen a piano in one. Is this a common experience in a lot of other places that I just seem to have missed? Where am I missing? Over the last decade or so, transit agencies have tried to put arts more into their station. And so whether it's outside of Boston, there's a system called MEVA. They've had pianos painted by local people and put one in each of their stations. One time I took one of those overnight trains from London up to uh, Scotland and the CEO said when he found that I played piano, he's like, all right, we're going to the main union station. We're going to have you play there. So yeah, they're all over the place. Not everywhere. Baltimore, you know, it's kind of a newer phenomenon. I'd say over the last five to 10 years. I mean, I would understand it if it was Union Station in Washington, D.C. They've got that big, gorgeous building or the main transportation centers at Philadelphia, 30th Street. If there was one in there, that'd be great. But definitely not the normal subway stations. There's a guy named Dr. Boogie Woogie on YouTube. People see him and he goes all over and plays in malls and subway stations and all. And he wasn't an inspiration. I found him after that, but he's a lot better than me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guarantee it's better than the chopsticks that I would be able to do otherwise. And uh, heart and soul, which I think is the one thing that everybody on the planet learns to play. They just don't know that that's what it's called. So uh, fun stuff. But now, aside from your aspiring piano career, tell us a little bit about Modaxo. What's your 30-second elevator pitch? Sure. I've been working for them for six years after I retired as CEO of the MTA in Baltimore. And they are the world's largest public transportation technology company. People may not realize it, but most subway, bus, 
plus light rail stations, they require a lot of back office software to run it, whether it's managing shops or reservation scheduling dispatch. Anyway, this company sells that all over the world and all the major transit systems in the world, 70, 80% of them have something from our company. And I'm their public face. I'm the C-suite ambassador. So I do C-suite engagement, which is anybody with a C in their title, a chief executive officer, finance officer, information officer, those kind of things through thought leadership. So the thought leadership side that I do is what we're doing right now. I do a weekly podcast, do a TV show, write books, uh, speak at conferences, do live events, do live webinars around the world, all of them designed to engage the C-suite of our customers, showcase their best practices, and also help them feel good about our company then. Beautiful. I love it. And nobody ever thinks about the mechanics of running a business. We need the buses, we need the subways, we need whatever else, but not about the software that runs it, that there's actually something specific for that purpose. And so that may be actually a very good segue into my next question, which is what's something you wish more people understood about your role, your company, or your industry? And how do you see your role in changing that perception? Yeah, that's good. Well, you've identified it, right? A lot of people don't understand that really, Since the 1980s, technology has been the backbone of most public transportation. Software is used to figure out the headways, which is the distance between buses or the distance between trains. You know, if you're at the WMATA, Washington Metro, I was there interviewing the CEO, Randy Clark, a couple days ago of Washington Metro, and they have designed, you know, the trains now to come more often. So you're not standing on the platform. Same with buses. They used to have 15-minute headways, which is the distance between buses. Maybe now they've got them between seven and eight minutes. The more frequency, the more people feel like, hey, I don't even need a schedule. I can just stand here. It's going to come. I can trust that it's going to be here. All that stuff is controlled, managed, and monitored by control centers with dispatchers and controllers, and all that runs on software. So everything you can think of, right, from call management to complaint management to reservation scheduling and dispatch, if it's an ADA paratransit vehicle, which is something I'm passionate about, Mm -hmm. helping people with disabilities. I ran Washington, D.C.'s paratransit system for five years. All that stuff is controlled by software. And there's a number of good companies, but ours is kind of like the Apple slash IBM of the industry. We've been around pretty much longer than everyone, like 25 or 30 years. And it's awesome. It's fun. And the algorithms and the software, I think, I've been around in this business for more than 30 years, are really good and strong. So I feel good working for a company that has quality product. And what is your role in helping more people to understand that the software matters? Yeah, I don't really try to do that. <laughs> my, my, <laughs> I'm a transit evangelist is uh, the title okay. I've given myself. So my job is really more to focus on the transit side. My old boss, Ted Gilkey, used to say, he was the first guy I worked for when I came to this company. He said, Paul, I wake up every day thinking about software. You wake up every day thinking about transit. And mm. that's my job in the company is to make sure that our software engineers and our executives stay focused on the customer, the passenger and the transit agencies and companies that we serve. Nice. You think about the software. One thing that always amazed me, and I don't think I've seen a city in the U.S. that does it, not that I've statistically significant sampling necessarily, so you can tell me about this one. But when I lived in Japan, I get when you have a subway timetable posted on the wall down to the minute and look, there's mass transit was you could set your pacemaker by and it was so on time. But there are buses you extended a bus stop and in the little shelter that was there, they'd have a not just a paper schedule posted this little digital thing and we're talking 25 years ago this isn't even recent where it would show you the current bus stop the last bus stop and the two bus stops beforehand and when the bus was at each stop the light would start to blink to let you know that it was on the way and it would match 
whatever was on the schedule. I mean, and I lived in cities. I lived in Nagoya and Osaka and Tokyo and, uh, you know, excuse me, not Osaka, but Kyoto. And these are big cities. They have rush hour. And yet the buses were always on time. Can you please explain to me that magic? Is there like a 30 second answer to the magic of that? Because we can't get anything on time in New York or in Philly. It's true, isn't it? A bus I think, in uh, particular. Yeah, yeah, they really know how to do it over there. You know, the average on-time performance, which is what they call that, that's the nomenclature OTP, for an American city is around 78%. That's the amount of time buses are on. I was down in Austin, Texas last week with Dottie Watkins, the CEO, and she said their OTP post-pandemic is now up to like 83. So 83 is considered like, eh, yeah. think about a baseball player. You know, if you're hitting four out of five times. Yeah, you, you're beyond. <laughs> you're, yeah. yeah. So we don't try to compare ourselves that. But Japan really knows how to do it well. And there's many ways you can do it. One of the biggest ways here in the U.S. and in Latin America, other places is uh, bus rapid transit, bus only lanes, where uh, you're no, trying to make, those. but they probably don't have that in Japan. No, no. So there's lots of tools and techniques using and, software, technology yep. and live people on the street to manage and monitor. It's Even just so, it's amazing. very difficult. They know how to do it. They're really a model for public transit. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I was amazing. The buses there where there's traffic could still be on time here. Subways can't be on time half the time and there's no traffic in the subway system. You have a dedicated lane. It's magic. I'm just going to give them credit for magic. Okay. Did you ever think, Paul, that you did a great job of explaining something only to have the listeners look at you like a deer in the headlights? You know, that happens sometimes. I try to break things down simple for people to understand. I do a lot of public speaking. I think my one kind of challenge continues to be that when I get excited, my pace picks up mm. and I get a little more rapid in my, I was just speaking at a conference in San Diego and uh, there were a bunch of people there that did not speak English as a first language. Mm. And somebody in the crowd said, you know, hey, can you slow down a little bit? We can't. So if I speak too fast, especially with people that have English as a second language, they may not be able to follow along. And I think that's a good lesson for everybody. In my former life, that was actually my specialty niche was working with professionals exclusively who didn't speak English as a native language. And look, we've got, I've worked with tons of people whose English is better than most Americans who only speak English. So it's not about not good enough either way. They're amazingly successful, amazingly highly educated. It's not, but to the extent that we use slang, that we use colloquial expressions, that we talk in run-on sentences and too fast, it's just layer upon layer of things that just make the brain computer start to have smoke coming out of it when you're trying to process all those things at once. So it's just a good reminder for all of us to slow down, put a period, not just at the end of what you're saying, but multiple in the middle and allow people to allow their brains to catch up with their ears. Uh, it's mission critical. And you can forget sometimes when somebody's English is so good that we still need to just be a little empathetic and not test them to the outer limits of their brain's capacity to process. So uh, great, great yeah. for all well, of us. Let me us. throw in one more thing too yeah. at the end of that, which is something that I try not to do, but it keeps me from understanding people. And that is the overuse of acronyms. So mm. many people in specific industries have all these acronyms that maybe they're familiar with. I mean, for instance, in my world, people use acronyms to describe transit systems, DART, 
You know, DART is yep. an acronym sure. for either Delaware Area Regional Transit or Dallas Area. There's 30 right. DARTs probably Marta's in America. Yeah. And right, exactly. Well, a lot of people don't know what that means. So right. don't say that. Or if you do, do what you did earlier when you introduced me on the book. You didn't say SAE, which is what I wrote. You said Society of Automotive Engineers because most people don't know what that is. Right. So that's another big one for people who communicate. Yes, Try the, not to overuse acronyms. The alphabet soup of an industry. Every industry has it. And we forget that it's not common nomenclature for everybody. So great reminder number two. Now, tell me about a time when you needed to assert yourself powerfully. I believe in kind of participative leadership, meaning everyone has to have a stake in what's happening in the organization. I've spent most of my career actually all of it in management since I started. Right out of college, I Mm -hmm. managed a small bus system and most people that worked for me could have been my grandparents. Mm. (laughs) So I want to include everyone's opinions. But when there's a crisis, you have to follow, I believe, Harry Truman, you know, the buck stops here. The leader needs to take action quickly, right? The submarine is sinking. You don't have time to ask everybody their opinion. You have to follow what the rules are. So we had a similar situation. Governor Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland at the time, had appointed me to be head of the Maryland Transit Administration, which oversaw transit in the state. But it also, I was the CEO and general manager of Baltimore City's transit system as part of that role. So we had bus, light rail, subway, commuter bus, commuter train, paratransit. And most people will remember back maybe like seven years ago, there were what at the time were called riots in Baltimore. It was, you know, wall-to-wall coverage on the news channels, CNN, Fox, everywhere. Things were burning. People were getting injured. Now it's called an uprising. But whatever it was called, the city was very tense. It was after the Freddie Gray incident, which was an awful thing that happened. So the MTA was involved in that because at the epicenter of the riots was around a place called Mondalmin Mall, which is a place where the subway meets buses. And the MTA, the Maryland Transit Administration, had multiple functions. One of them was we were the school bus provider for middle school and high school students in Baltimore. 26,000 students a day rode our transit system. And I think for anybody, by the way, out there who's maybe not from a city or hasn't spent a lot of time in a city, in the suburbs, we're used to seeing the yellow buses kind of come around and pick up kids. And in the cities. Elementary school still has those special buses, and not all do. Some still do mass transit, but most older students take the public transit, the subways and the buses on the way to school with just separate passes. So continue. So anyway, the epicenter of where things kind of started from in that uprising was around the Mondalmin Mall. And it was around the time when students are transferring at the end of school from buses to subway. That happens right there. It's a big transfer station. So I got my appointment as head of the MTA two weeks after the riots uprising there in Baltimore. And the city was very, very tense. People can remember back, or a lot of cities were tense during that time, but Baltimore especially. And so Uh, School had wrapped up, you know, as it normally does. And we went through the summer and I really took my first hundred days in the job to really learn and not assert myself. I was on a tour, a listening tour, went around to all of our garages, talked to employees, had lots of public meetings. And it was right at the end of that period that school had started again at the end of August. I'd done all the checks to make sure the operations folks were ready for the start of school in light of the fact that there were some issues last time around one of our big stations. And I was given all the assurances. Well, of course, on the first day of school, the superintendent of schools called me, which I'd never met before, and said, Paul, there's thousands of kids meandering around Mondawmin Mall. You don't have enough buses there to do the transfers. 
So I kind of freaked out, you know, because that's the last thing we needed. And so got on the phone, went out there and got things rolling. And the next day in our after action meeting, which I called, I was not friendly and I was not, you know, Mr. Kind Paul. I was a man obsessed <laughs> with making sure that this did not happen again. Sure. And foul language and yelling and a little bit of that. Just, yeah, you know, I was a little bit scared, to be honest with you. I think a lot of people wouldn't that we didn't want the MTA to be at the center of another crisis. And, you know, I'm still in, I don't really understand how this organization works yet. 5,000 employees, billion dollar budget. I hadn't really plumbed the depths and kind of knew the levers of power to make things happen. So I really demanded of our staff that they step up and not do things as normal anymore. We couldn't do it. I'd been told by the governor when I got there that this was not a very well-functioning place and we really need to make some changes. And I could see it because there wasn't a sense of urgency. And so I established that day four new North Stars, safety efficiency, reliability, and world-class customer service. Say those again. So there's a new sheriff in town, so to speak, with four stars of new standards. And those were? Safety. Yes. Number one, always. Efficiency, right? Using the taxpayers' dollars wisely. Reliability, that's on time. And world-class customer service. I revamped everything at the agency starting that day to focus around those four North Stars. You know, we've changed all the driver training programs and retrained all the receptionists and anybody that actually touched the public to make sure that they were following the same protocols, wouldn't transfer people a bunch of time. And at that meeting, I basically told everyone there, listen, if you're not up to this, no hard feelings, you can leave. But I want you to know that we're going to demand accountability. We know what the goals are and the boundaries. Now we're going to place iterative goal sets for each of you, and you're going to be required to meet key performance indicators. And if not, it won't be good. So if you're not up for it, leave now. And you know what? Several people did shortly after that. And so I had to kind of lay down the law as the best kind of way I can think about it. And from that moment on, I think I gained the respect of the senior leadership team, which is obviously a key to all relationships, but it also kind of established an operating environment where we could be open and vulnerable and trust one another within those boundaries that we were all in this together and we had actually shared a common mission, which was to provide safe, efficient, reliable transportation with world-class customer service. Yep. Up until then, I felt like the agency was unmoored. It was kind of floating without a direction. And uh, a crisis focused us and let us know that we had to move forward with a set goal and set boundaries. It begs the question of how it's possible that the system wasn't aware of the fact that first day of school, there's going to be the same number of students that there were last year, more or less, on the first day of school. And that, you know, do the math, how many buses slash whatever would be necessary. But I don't want to go too far into the weeds of it, but that question has been like rattling around in my brain since you mentioned it. One way to encapsulate everything that was going on at the agency at the time was when we finally were able to figure out what our real on-time performance was, Mm -hmm. I'm sad to say it was in the low 50 percentile. The buses were only on time half the time which is unheard of and unacceptable. And now they've put in place lots. We put in some and my successors who were my uh, head of planning and now my head of capital budgets. She's now the head of it. Holly doing a great job. Now they're in the average mid 80s, which is kind of considered acceptable. Low 80s is actually better than the average. So it needed a lot of work. Yeah, but it sounds like you made some amazing changes right away and it's good to get clear. And it's nice to say, look, here's our new standards. Anybody who doesn't like them is free to go. And then to have them sort of self-select out makes everybody's life a little easier other than now there's some spaces to fill. But ideally, of course, you get the fill to people who want to be part of a program that has those kinds of standards because, yeah, who doesn't want to be part of something that's 
a place that's worth working for, which is a great challenge to them. And now it's time to challenge the audience. Paul, it's an opportunity now to speak directly to our audience for the Listener 24-Hour Influence Challenge. It's a chance for you to challenge the audience to take one step that they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence. How would you like to challenge our listeners today? I want to do it through a quick story. Those who are of a certain age will remember there used to be two stores. One was called Kmart and one was mm-hmm. called Walmart. Yes. Uh, and uh, they both basically sold the same thing. They were both started in the same state of Arkansas and they both started around the same year. One mm-hmm. went bankrupt. One went on to become the number one company in the world. What was the difference? I would argue leadership. And leadership is the people involved in leadership positions and how they handle things. Those who, you know, remember Sam Walton and read his book, saw his leadership style and what he did. So it really revolves around, like Michael Jackson said, the man in the mirror, right? Mm -hmm. Or the woman in the mirror. You have to stand, draw a circle around yourself and start to make improvements there to become a better leader, to make a difference in the world. Here's my challenge. Over the next 24 hours, sit down and take an inventory of you, of yourself, your favorite topic, right? Yourself. And so it should be easy. (laughs) Sit down wherever you can be quiet and, you know, not have interfering noises and competition for your attention and analyze two things, your X and your Y axis. One is what you're good at. What truly are my skills? There's a book called Strength Finder. There's others that do that. Figure out what are your skill sets what you're good at, not what your mom says you're good at, and boil it down to the actual skills, right? Is it communications? Is it, I'm good with my hands? Those kind of things. And then the cross-reference is, what do you enjoy? And what do you do and not get paid for it? Yeah, what are um, your passions? Yeah, what are your passions, right? And if you can find a place where those two intersect, I would circle that and start focusing in on that. Focus on your strengths, Don't necessarily focus on bolstering your weaknesses. Most of us as adults, we have strong grooves in our personality and our. it's going to be hard to change those. There's a lot of books written about that. Sure. But focus on the strengths. And I think that you will be able to make yourself more useful and you will be identified as a leader and you'll be passionate about what you're doing, which is the one thing that's missing with most people these days. I get all these meetings and people talk and they're so long and drone. They don't seem to really care about what they're doing. And it may just be their personality, their speaking style. But if you are passionate about what you're doing, you will be stand head and shoulders above other people and you'll get opportunities. And remember, there's no such thing as luck. Luck is being prepared when opportunity strikes. And the way you're prepared is if you focus on that X spot. No, I love it. And that's such an uplifting kind of happy challenge. I think people think that the word challenge is being like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to do something I don't want to do. But this is kind of fun. You can sit there with a cup of coffee or tea and just say, okay, what am I good at? And what do I love? And make those lists and just look to see where they happen to overlap. And then allow that to percolate a little bit. So how do I bring more of that in my life? And how can I, ideally, if I'm not already getting paid to do it, at least in part, if not in whole, perhaps consider ways to change it. Even within your current job, it's not saying, okay, jump ship and start playing piano in subway stations, which perhaps you could if there's a way to make money doing that. I don't know. But how can you add some of that to your current job? How do you bring something into a meeting once a week or have a conversation with your boss about changing a system or you're the boss, so change the system, whatever it happens to be, but add that to your space. I love it. So tell me about when you've had to interview people for a leadership role. And at some point you thought to yourself, this person really has it. 
What was that it? What impressed you and how did you recognize it? So in management positions, you are called upon a lot of times to do interviews. And a lot of times in big organizations, HR defines the questions that can be asked. They put a panel together, all those things. So it is important, though, that you rely on your own internal judgment, which is what you're paid for, in my opinion, to be an executive. Mm -hmm. So what I did was I had to interview a guy one time at the MTA, I remember, and it was for the director of bus operations. We had an opening. Someone had left and this guy had a trucking background, not a bus background. So using kind of the principles of thin slicing, which I learned in the book Blink, or at least identified in the book Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, Mm -hmm. great great book. book, one of the best five books I've read probably in 10, 20 years. I was able to basically break the job down into what its core functions were. And it wasn't necessary to necessarily know all about public transportation, but it was necessary to understand how to lead people and how to manage kind of a logistics approach, which he had done managing trucks, on-time deliveries, making sure things were smooth. And it was a long, long interview. And I made him convince me that he could do it and you know, mm. let him know that we had a certain period of time, which would be a probationary period. And I would really have my eye on him if we picked him. And he did a great job. And so the idea was that I wasn't necessarily looking for dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's in his background and experience. I was looking for the core essential person there and what skills, knowledge, and abilities he had. And could they be utilized in this function? That's what the federal government looks for. They look for knowledge, skills, and abilities. And if you Mm -hmm. have those, You can cross them over, like you said a minute ago. You know, you may be in a job that doesn't utilize what my things I love are, but if I can figure out a way to do that in my job, all the better. And say those three again. It was for knowledge, knowledge, skills, and abilities. Yeah. What's the difference between a skill and an ability? Skill would be something that you've learned, and ability would be something that's innate. Interesting. Okay. And what was the combination of just two or three apiece knowledge, skills, and abilities of this person so we can sort of see how they break down? He had an inordinate focus on on on-time performance, which is what we needed in our buses. He understood that the trucks or the buses in this case had to get there on time and knew how to make that happen. Knew how to motivate people to do their jobs, do it effectively, how to reward them, how to challenge them, how to inspire them which is really what we needed. Understood how to work in a union environment, which we had, and also was had a heavy focus on safety, which is yeah. always number one in public transportation. So he had the right mix of things and has actually become super successful and is a part of the reason why, you know, they're at over 80 some percent on time performance. Yes. He's the boss of it. So he's figured out how to do it. But I think it's important to look at those specifics as kind of a little case study of taking that theory and then saying, well, what does that look like in practice? So the understanding of the system of on-time performance as the knowledge factor okay, is how to make it happen. Yes, there's knowledge involved in that, but it's active knowledge that's been translated into skill. He understands what has to go into place, presumably who to delegate what tasks to, to make sure it actually gets built, et cetera. And the ability to inspire others, not just to instruct or to whatever, but to get people on board with the vision and make it happen. So, you know, I think that's such a great example. So to ask everybody else, you know, where's your great knowledge? Where's your skill? Where's your ability? What's transferable? When you're looking for a job, I think that's getting those transferable skills, that transferable knowledge that you can take from one place to another as you're working up through your career, whether you're right out of college or looking for the next chapter, so to speak, in whatever you want that career to be. So great examples. So everybody identify whether you're applying for a job with the federal government or otherwise, I think it's a great kind of three buckets to think about 
in having to describe yourself, which, of course, is something we all need to do at some point. I hate those questions in interviews. I don't know about you, Paul, but the ones that are like, tell me about yourself. What don't I know about? And I know there's 27 different ways that you can answer that question. But at some point, we want to make sure that in that interview, people understand where are you knowledgeable? What do you know how to do and what special abilities, maybe superpowers do you have? And I think inspiration is certainly one of them. If you can get through to others, there's massive power in that. And finally, Paul, what is something that you do to create a little bit more fun for your team or organization, Modaxo-wide? Yeah, fun is important. Yes. Um, my dad used to say, Paul, to you, every day's a holiday. And he didn't mean that I didn't work. He just meant that was my sunny disposition at work because I like a holiday. And I think that's important. People need to have something to look forward to. So since we've been talking a lot about the MTA, I'll just go back to that, the Maryland Transit Administration. So everybody's a big Orioles fan. This year, especially, by the way, because they just won the pennant. So we would do a big MTA day at the Orioles. So we'd have, you know, tickets for everyone to go to the game. We'd have some of them go out in the field and get to participate in things with the bird, you know, the mascot. And we just got them really involved and had a fun night. They could bring their families. We did that with bus rodeos as well, which is where drivers compete against each other. They could bring their families. We'd have a big meal for everyone, spend a Saturday together, seeing their loved one, you know, do well out on the obstacle course, driving the bus or the vehicle. Just fun things for the family and for them individually that they would enjoy, I think, are important touch points in having a successful organization. It absolutely is. What was your favorite part or what is your favorite part now? So my favorite part to me, I'm a people person. So what's fun to me may not be what's fun to others, but I love going to a conference and having a dinner with like eight to 10 people sitting around a table. Uh, I call them salons. I actually host them in big cities that I go to around the country. I invite a bunch of disparate people with different job functions, but all around transportation. Just did one in LA. You know, had somebody from the mayor's office, from the this and from that, and, and from the local ad agencies, et cetera. And we talk about what we're passionate about, why, why we're trying to change the world, and really getting beyond surface conversations. Yes. Because we're all kings of small talk or queens of small talk but getting into somebody's heart and soul a little bit, as much as they're open to do and learning and actually having bonded relationships that come out of that. That's what I love. I think that's great. And I'm right there with you having those conversations just really drives things. So I'm getting to know people. Pretty obvious. You're a people person. I'm a people person. You'd be surprised how many are not kings or queens with small talk. That's actually the scary part. You know, I've interviewed people where they're like, at a, at a room full of people, I can talk to anybody. I just can't introduce myself. It's like, breaking that ice, just cracking that shell. If they get introduced then and they get to shake hands, hey, Paul, meet this person, then they're good to go. But it's like they just can't pull out the stop or it's funny. We all have our own little bugaboos. That actually is a rare skill. You're right. Just walking up to somebody cold, which actually I love doing. I love yeah. going up and saying, hi, I'm Paul Comfort. What's your name? What do you do? Where are you from? Blah, blah, blah. I think for the people who are, who are more apprehensive about that, an easy thing to do is look for somebody else. Just stand there, scan the room and look for somebody else who's standing there looking around the room because they're hoping and praying that somebody's going to come up to them and take the onus off their shoulders because they don't know how to introduce themselves either. So you'll be their hero for coming up and doing it. There's nothing awkward left about it. So meeting people is definitely a blessing in those places. I have loved this conversation, Paul, but we've got to wrap it up. How can people learn more about you and Modaxo? 
I have a website. My personal website is futureofpublictransportation.com. The best way to connect with me is on LinkedIn. Just put in Paul Comfort. I have like 25,000 people I'm connected with there. And I put up something every day about the public transportation industry. We have the podcast, Transit Unplugged, on all podcast platforms. It's a weekly show where I interview CEOs. And please go to our YouTube page, Transit Unplugged TV. Check out our 15-minute, it's like an Anthony Bourdain show where we look at the food, the culture, and the transit, though. He didn't do that, of a city. The new one coming out, we just did Barcelona. People are loving it. And Sao Mm. Paulo is coming up after that. So so fun. I want to be on your crew and going around (laughs) and and, uh, riding transportation if I get to eat in all these wonderful places. Oh, yeah. Some of the best restaurants, man. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. We have chefs come out. Like, I just did one in Austin. We had a guy from the Food Network come out with us. It's Terry Blacks. And the owners came out, the barbecue, and talked to us. And we got to see behind the scenes. It's so much fun. I'm tagging along with you. I'm just going to, you know, ride along. And hey, look, you're on a bus. You've got plenty of space. So one more person won't make a difference. And, and I don't eat that much. Actually, that's not true. And places like that, I'm going to eat everything possible. Sounds like fun. Paul, once again, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Laura. It's awesome. And for everybody else out there, thank you for tuning in. As always, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or your platform of choice so that we can help even more people to increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please, Go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.